Welcome back, Warriors. Tonsei Sego Anibuju, Kwe Nindaluizi Pampometer, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, practices, and laws. And it's also about asserting, living, and defending our sovereignty all over Turtle Island. And today, we are super fortunate to have with us Gabe Galanda. He is an Indigenous human rights lawyer based out of Seattle, and he belongs to the Round Valley Indian tribes of Northern California in the United States. In addition to winning many awards for his legal work, he has also helped educate the broader Native community in the United States about the dangers of tribal disenrollment. I first met him at a conference in the U.S. on tribal citizenship issues and have literally been following his work ever since. I am truly honored to have you here. Welcome to the show, Gabe. Thank you, Pam, for having me. I'm really excited to be on your show. Oh, that's that's so awesome because I know how busy you are. And I'm wondering if you would like to introduce yourself in the way that you like to, maybe where you're from or your territory. Yes, well, as you said, I belong to the Round Valley Indian tribes in Northern California, Mendocino County, or the town of Covalo to be exact. I descend from two tribes that have been confederated into our now Round Valley Indian tribes, uh, the Nomlaki and Konkow tribes. Uh, I was born and raised uh, north of California a good distance, which is to say in Washington State on the North Olympic Peninsula in a town called Port Angeles. And since the year 2000, I've made my home in Seattle, Washington, uh, where I have a family and I practice Indigenous human rights law. That's awesome. I mean, what made you get into Indigenous human rights law to begin with? Um, I went to law school with a particular focus on what was then tribal law and policy. Uh, that was sort of how the studies uh, were described in the late 1990s, and today it's broader uh, in focus and even in territory in terms of international indigenous human rights. Um, but it was just something I, I felt called to study and practice when I was an undergraduate uh, education. And it was something I was fortunate to study at University of Arizona and do have practiced for the last 20 years. Well, I mean, that's amazing because your law firm is Galanda Broadman, right? Correct. Yeah, that's right. And um, you have people like uh, Robert Hershey attached to your firm. Correct. Yeah, and he's uh, he's one of your colleagues who's also been doing a lot of work in Indian country for many decades. Yeah, for many more decades than I have. He's been at it for over 40 years, and he was my professor and mentor and good friend when I was in law school. And he's been my mentor and good friend and is now my colleague uh, now that I'm practicing. So he's a great man, and I'm a privilege and honored to be affiliated with him in a number of ways. Well, I'm I'm really thankful to him as well because it's through him that I got to meet you and hear about your work and have you on this show. And so l let's get right into it because so many of my listeners have reached out. I mean, I do podcasts on a whole bunch of different issues, but the one where there seems to be a huge amount of interest is all of the complex issues that impact our native identities and different formal mechanisms for belonging, whether it's called enrollment or membership or citizenship. But can you explain to the audience, like, 
what is this issue around tribal disenrollment? How does it work and, and what's going on? First, just let me thank you for helping shine the light on this issue. And I know you come from First Nations country mm-hmm. and I've begun to receive inquiries and get calls from your relatives or our relatives up north of the United States Canadian border about these issues. And so I think it's very important, especially for people that you're more closely connected to uh, up in Canada, they, they, they and you start paying careful attention to this because as we know, movements, be they good or bad, cross that Canadian United States border from Canada to the United States and the United States to Canada. And I think of the good ones like missing and murdered indigenous women and I don't know more, but there have been some bad ones creeping across that border and that includes disenrollment. And like I said, some of your relatives have started to reach out to me in concern for disenrollment happening uh, up in Canada, like we've seen it down here in the United States. And for context, um, it's an epidemic down here in the United States, or at least uh, has been an epidemic for the last decade or so. We have uh, 80 of our federally recognized tribal governments having participated in this particular behavior. That's about 15% of the tribal governments who are federally recognized by the United States here in America. The estimates are as many as eight or nine or 10 or even 11,000 indigenous individuals here in America have been disenrolled by their own relatives, uh, typically politicians who are elected into tribal governmental office. Um, And those are those are disastrous numbers when we talk about sustaining ourselves uh, indefinitely. Um, but disenrollment is a process, if you would even call it a process, uh, by which uh, politicians for tribal governments, at least here in the United States, make decisions that are almost certainly motivated by non-tribal values, uh, most notably uh, greed or power or the desire to stay in power or maintain certain wealth. Um, And in the spirit of those uh, motivations, they will get rid of their own relatives. They will remove them from what are called roles uh, or enrollment records down here in the United States and essentially exile or banish them from tribal communities so that they no longer have a place that they would normally call home in which they belong. It's quite horrific. So uh, let me get this straight and and really clarify for listeners who maybe don't have a background in, in, in these issues. This isn't the U.S. government or the state government doing this. It's not. It's even worse. It's tribal politicians doing it with weaponry that was fashioned to exterminate indigenous peoples, weaponry fashioned by the United States uh, dating back to uh, colonial times. So disenrollment usually involves some claim that uh, an individual's blood is not to the degree required by a tribe or that an individual's great-great-grandma did not appear on some federal roll or census from the late 1800s, which at that time were used to assimilate and decimate indigenous peoples. So it is, it is not a federal act, nor is it a state act. It is a tribal act, really an act of tribal politicians, but they are using 
again, the weaponry fashioned by the United States over the last 200 years to exterminate Indians to basically do the job of the colonizer ourselves by exterminating their own relatives. Right. So here in, in Canada, I mean, we we still have legislation. I mean, we still have federal legislation that has a legislative extinction date for Indians. And, and of course, no Indians means no members and no members means, you know, no First Nations. And But in addition to that, we also have First Nations that do their own what they call membership codes. And some of them have uh, very high blood quantum criteria. Uh, and some of them have increasing blood quantum criteria so that, in fact, their extinction date is faster than would it, it would be under the federal legislation and certainly um, runs counter to all of the traditions that we have about carrying on our future generations. And I'm, you know, given that the border between the Canada and, and U.S. Uh, governments is, you know, ar artificial and you know, divides our nations and our territories artificially, certainly the traditions in, in um, the traditional Indigenous nations in the U.S., what's now known as the U.S., they couldn't have been promoting any kind of disenrollment process either as a matter of tradition. No, that's correct. And so I've been in a number of communities that have been, um, you know, subject to these disenrollment controversies, which uh, rip apart the community at its seams. And, and in my estimation, don't really ever allow a community to heal uh, from what happens. But one of the first things I ask to the people in those communities who might still speak the language is can you tell me in your own language or dialect if there is a word that means in a customary way disenrollment or anything close to it? And the answer is always no. There's no traditional word in our language, uh, be it Chinook Wawa or um, some other language here in the, in the Northwest that equates to disenrollment, which to me says it all. It is not an indigenous construct, an indigenous norm, an indigenous value. It is a construct and norm foisted upon indigenous peoples by uh, colonial and federal forces who for the last several centuries have been uh, intent on exterminating us. And now we are using those devices and that weaponry to again do the work of the colonizer ourselves. So I'm wondering if you could explain maybe a little bit about how it works. So, for example, here in Canada, let's say a First Nation develops a membership code and it says everyone has to be 82.5% Indian blood or you don't get to be a member. So it acts as a barrier to even getting membership. But in, in the U.S., it sounds like you're talking about people who are already enrolled, already members or citizens who are actually being removed from lists. Can you tell me a little bit about how, how that actually happens? Like, do the, is it just laws that they're creating to allow that to happen? Yeah, so that's an important distinction. You know, we're not talking about, you know, prohibitions on enrollment or moratoria on enrollment. We're talking about the exclusion of indigenous peoples who have already been included on membership roles as a matter of an enrollment process. And typically what happens is a group of tribal politicians 
who have been elected by uh, a community to lead a tribe, make a political decision, again, motivated by greed or uh, political desires, to get rid of some group of their relatives who are part of the membership, again, having already been enrolled into the tribe. Um, and often it's a question of if we get rid of this certain set of families, we will be more likely to be reelected or we will be um, more able to give um, financial or other benefits to the families that remain. And so they then embark upon a process, again, in air quotes, the word process, mm -hmm. by which they will get rid of the people they have selected for exclusion and exile. Um, some notice may go out to them, meaning the family or families in writing, but I've also seen it where on a Saturday afternoon in an auditorium, uh, some words were spoken by tribal politicians and some decision was made by those tribal politicians. And before that Saturday afternoon adjourned, you know, 80 or a hundred people were no longer part of the tribe. And, and that was that. Wow. But to the extent notice is given, uh, at least in the United States, where we have tribal courts and tribal constitutions and tribal codes and the federal Indian civil rights act, um, all of which should require some form of due process. Um, once that notice issues, it typically tells the individual or individuals, um, what they need to do to defend themselves, uh, from the, the idea of disenrollment. And they then do whatever they possibly can to try to, uh, save themselves. But more often than not, the notice that issues issues to them is not issued in a good way. Uh, if there's a process, and again, I've talked about situations where there was no process at all, it's not typically done in a good way, meaning it's not an honest process where someone can actually prove their belonging mm -hmm. um, openly and honestly. Typically, once word or notice is issued, um, the same people that delivered that word or issued that notice, uh, see fit to control every form of democratic process, be it a, an executive branch process, a tribal council or legislative process, a tribal court process, a general council or community process, to ensure that the process goes against the individuals being persecuted to ensure that they're ultimately eradicated from the tribe. It just, it, it sounds unbelievable. I mean, this is clearly things that colonial governments have done in what's now Canada and the U.S. in a wide variety of forms. I mean, you think of residential schools here or boarding schools, I think they were called in the U.S., where, I mean, our kids were literally stolen from our nations and, and put in these schools. Some never came out alive or kids who are stolen and put into foster care. I mean, this is this is literally ripping people from their nations. I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit. I mean, you must know some of these people personally by now what the individual impact is. Like, how does this impact, you know, both the individuals and the nation? Yeah, well, there was a Tribal Court of Appeals decision issued out in the Great Lakes, I believe, that said disenrollment is tantamount to the loss of an individual's everything. Oh. And by everything, they mean um, the feeling of belonging, you know, to a place, to a community, to an extended family. And, you know, just imagine belonging to a community hall 
or a local neighborhood that you grew up in, uh, you know, or your tribal homelands or your ancestral territories. Um, all of that is ripped away from that individual, right? They're, they're uprooted. And then from things, uh, from that, there are things like the loss of potentially a home, um, the, the loss of a job, perhaps with the tribe, uh, the loss of health care, which is furnished down here by the United States government, uh, the loss of educational assistance, um, the loss of social services, uh, be it mental health care or vocational training. I mean, whatever that individual or family or set of relatives may be relying upon to survive and sustain, not just as indigenous peoples, but as human beings and families and fathers and mothers and daughters and husbands and wives, um, it's, it's ripped away. And I've seen, candidly, people die um, while suffering from the affliction caused by disenrollment. Um, I've seen individuals bankrupted by it. Uh, I've seen families ruined uh, by this. Uh, it is it is honestly the most horrific thing I've ever seen happen to an indigenous person um, in my own life. And the real horror there is it is being afflicted and caused by other indigenous peoples. And in fact, their own relatives. I think that's the really unbelievable part. Uh, and, I, and I know that we are all at different stages of decolonization and understanding how colonial ideologies, laws, thoughts, theories, and all of that have, you know, infiltrated our our nations or our, or our minds or our ways of thinking. But it, you know, every time I think about it in Canada where, you know, tens of thousands of people are prevented from being members of their community or in the U.S. where you have as many being disenrolled who are already uh, citizens or members, it it seems unbelievable that we could do that to ourselves. And, and you know, I, I think about, you know, what are the drivers? And I know you talked about, you know, sometimes it's politics and it's the same here in Canada. Sometimes it's about money. And of course, that's the same thing here in Canada. Um, but I've also heard uh, different folks talk about the relationship between some of the disenrollment and some of the gaming tribes. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, we're in an epidemic state here because over the last uh, several decades, uh, Indian gaming has flourished here in the United States to a 30 plus billion dollar industry annually, $32 billion industry, I think, at my last count. It could be even higher. And under federal law here in the United States, the net proceeds from Indian gaming can be distributed to individual tribal members by a tribe on what is called a per capita basis. Basically, they can be prorated um, and and then given to individuals, typically on a monthly basis, but it can also be on a quarterly or an annual basis. And those gaming per capita payments, as they're called down here, or per caps, can range from $1,000 a month per tribal member, which for a family of four is $4,000 a month, or a family of six is $6,000 a month, to um, five or six figures uh, per month or per year, 
I mean, there are millionaire Indians down here in certain small tribes as a result of these per capita payments. But more commonly, um, there are tribal members receiving, you know, the thousand dollars per month or the tribal household receiving five or ten thousand dollars per month. Um, at some point, it occurs to people in these communities or these tribal politicians that if the community is comprised of 100 people and they're each getting $500 a month and we get rid of 50 of the people, they will now get $1,000 per month. And those 50 remaining people will be indebted to me, the tribal chairman, because I just doubled their family's income on a monthly basis, never minding that they just got rid of half of the tribe or 50 of those people's relatives. And that is the sickening political mindset of too many tribal politicians down here that has caused nearly 10,000 tribal members to have been disenrolled predominantly over the last decade and overwhelmingly in correlation to these Indian gaming dollars. It, 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 seems, it seems inconceivable that we would in any way adopt the very same colonial mentality or focus on you know, capitalistic or financial benefits over the value of things like our nation, like our nation existing in the future. And, it, you know, there's different reasons here in Canada. So for some, um, some of the problems around having very restrictive membership rules in some of the smaller communities were, were attached to the oil and gas bans. So the First Nations that just happened to have oil and gas uh, under their reserves and they were in a situation, the similar situation with per capita distributions and so limited membership to almost only family members. Yeah, and it's maybe a subject for another day, but we've already talked mm -hmm. about sort of enrollment prohibition or moratoria. Mm -hmm. And we do now have a, a problem here in the United States where tribes are not enrolling their children. Meaning uh -huh. they are forsaking, you know, in terms of the seven generations as is often talked about down here, you know, they're forsaking the next five generations because they're trying to keep the current generation at the same level of per capita wealth that they are currently in. So for sake of those thousand dollar checks, we are cutting off our nose to spite our face by not enrolling our children and basically severing the seven generations, which is hard to even fathom, but that's in fact what's happening. So, I mean, the, these are pretty devastating impacts on, you know, not just individuals, but whole families. So I can see how this would ent entirely destroy large extended families. And like you said, things like, um, dying or bankruptcy or, you know, losing their jobs or their ability. And, and then it becomes very much just a core basic human rights issue. Now, on the, on the collective side of things, uh, presumably some of these politicians, like some in Canada, promote this as being good for the nation, that this will be, be more prosperous for the nation, but not a whole lot of talk about what does it mean for the future. So in Canada, what it means is adopting a, an extinction date for your First Nation. And that, that means no, like no more First Nation in the future. So then who does all the money go to? And, I'm, and it sounds to me like tribal disenrollment 
might have the same effect, like having a future extinction date for the nation. Is that is that similar? Yeah, I mean, it's essentially self-extinction or self-termination. We did have extinction dates down here for certain tribes, especially in the 1950s. They were terminated by Congress. We don't have extinction dates today, but uh, we always exist at the the will of Congress as a matter of federal plenary power, and Congress could eventually terminate tribes. But essentially, it is it is self-termination or self-extinction um, by way of disenrollment. And again, even the tribe that remains after disenrollment is never the same. Uh, it is always decimated spiritually, culturally, religiously, even economically. They may think that they are gaining um, more wealth on an individual basis or on a monthly basis, but in the long term, um, you know, given notions of uh, of power and numbers, they're they're decimating themselves. I mean, tribes down here receive monies from the federal government essentially on a per capita basis for things like healthcare and governmental programs, and they're able to run their governments uh, with indirect cost allocation that allows them to basically build out their tribe. And it just defies logic that you would then get rid of your population and lower your numbers and in turn your funding and in turn your ability to grow your government. Mm-hmm. So no matter how you look at it, it is it is self-extinction, it is self-decimation, and it's self-termination. Maybe not by a certain date, maybe it becomes gradual, but that's exactly what's happening. So if I understand correctly from some of the presentations or speaking that I, I've heard you give, you represent uh, some of those tribal members in disenrollment cases. Have you had any success, uh, and I'm asking this for the larger, the benefit of the larger audience, but have you had any success in stopping disenrollment in any particular cases? Yeah, where there are strong tribal governments and democratic institutions and checks and balances, uh, meaning checks and balances against the political desires of tribal politicians, we have succeeded. So for example, at the Grand Ron uh, Indian community in, in the Willamette Valley in Western Oregon, where as many as 80 direct descendants of the tribe's treaty chief, who were being disenrolled, um, challenged their disenrollment through a tribal court and in turn a court of appeals process. We found ourselves victorious insofar as three outside judges, all of whom were indigenous citizens of other tribes and lawyers presiding as court of appeals judges, found that the tribe could not use the name an existence and legacy of a treaty chief to in fact be restored into recognition in the 1980s after it had been terminated in the 1950s. And then could not use his legacy throughout Oregon to reestablish ancestral ties to certain homelands and to to, uh, fishing sites and other things. And then uh, 20 to 30 years later, after having enrolled these direct descendants of this treaty chief into the tribe, claim they somehow didn't belong. These three Court of Appeals justices found as a matter of equity or a legal doctrine down here called latches, which is designed to sort of preserve the status quo after some period of time has run. They said, you can't do that. You've, you've waited too long. 
and you're stopped from basically talking out of both sides of your mouth, which is to say that he's our treaty chief, and therefore we have all these rights and privileges, historically speaking, but these people don't belong as his direct lineal descendants. So yes, when there have when there are strong pillars of tribal democracy and check and balance, uh, we have succeeded. But unfortunately, more often than not, far more often than not, the same communities that allow this to happen at the hands of tribal politicians are weakened by colonial forces, by federal forces of the last two centuries. And it's those weakened tribal communities and tribal governments that the tribal politicians exploit the most to get what they want, which is to get rid of these relatives. So in other words, there's a large number of those who have been disenrolled who who won't be re-enrolled, who who don't who are not successful in their you know appeal processes, be it um, you know, through traditional or or tribal court processes. Yeah, the overwhelming majority of people who have been proposed for disenrollment have in fact been disenrolled. There, there's a small segment uh, of those who have been proposed for disenrollment who have been saved from disenrollment. Because again, typically the, the tribal politicians who are causing the disenrollment are taking advantage of a tribe whose indigenous ability to self-govern or self-resolve has been decimated mm. by colonization and federalism. And they take full advantage of that. They also take advantage of the fact that in some of these communities, the languages are almost lost, if not lost. The traditions and cultural ways uh, are not as strong as they once were. So there's, there's not a religious or traditional or cultural check and balance against the tyranny. And these politicians see see that seize that exploit that and and cause the disenrollment to be accomplished um because they're aware that that's the reality in those tribal communities so it's a sad state but far more often than not people who are subject to disenrollment are in fact disenrolled and exiled and that's why we're talking again about thousands of people and 15 percent of the federally recognized tribes down here having fallen victim to this are, are you worried? I mean, you, you know the trends better than anyone else in the U.S. Are you worried that, you know, this 15% of the federally recognized tribes um, using disenrollment will expand to 20%, 30%? Like, are, are you, do you see a trend of this growing? Well, I've seen it plateau. I mean, okay. the majority of those 80 tribes, that happened and this is according to Dr. David Wilkins and Shelley Wilkins' amazing book, Dismembered, which everyone should read. It really talks about the disenrollment epidemic that we've witnessed here in the United States for the last 10 or 15 years. But really for from about um, you know the mid-early 2000s to about, I don't know, 2010 or so, that was really the peak of disenrollment. And it continued till about 2015 or 16. And then we actually started to see it plateau. Um, there were very prominent cases like the Cherokee Freedmen, like the Nooksack 306, um, that really brought to light uh, the atrocity of disenrollment and really um, created a spectacle of Indian country by way of disenrollment and the idea that at Nooksack, 306 people or 15% of a tribe would be disenrolled without process. Um, or a Grand Ron that the you know the direct descendants of a treaty chief of all people would be disenrolled. 
such a spectacle was created through mainstream news media, through social media, through the Moccasin Telegraph, that I think awareness was created about disenrollment. Uh, the Wilkins book has furthered that awareness. And as a result of that awareness and that education or re-education about disenrollment, I think we've seen it plateau or wane a little bit, but I continue to receive calls almost on a monthly basis from somebody who's either been disenrolled or is fearful of being disenrolled or is in fact being disenrolled. And so um, there's no end to it, but it's not quite as bad as it was even five or 10 years ago. But, but I, am, I am worried that be it disenrollment or enrollment moratoria or fights over you know, per capita dollars leading to some other form of, of exile that um, we're headed in the wrong direction as, as indigenous peoples. Yeah, well, and as we know, that artificial border between the Canada and the U.S. doesn't stop anything good or bad from um, migrating between, you know, tribal governments there or First Nations here. And I'm just wondering, like, I, I mean, clearly education at the grassroots level is really, really important. Um, but what about at the leadership level? Are there efforts to to help educate and and bring awareness to you know tribal leaders that this is in fact you know counterintuitive that this actually hurts your government in the long run i'm so glad you asked that because the answer disappointingly is no we have very strong intertribal groups here in the united states that exist nationally the national congress of american indians the National Indian Gaming Association, uh, the Native American Rights Fund, uh, the, the list goes on and on. And when there are threats to indigenous women or indigenous children or tribal governments, those institutions, those pillars of Indian country stand strong and stand at the forefront and defend those attacks, typically by states or the federal government. But in this particular instance, they sit silent. The sad reality is many of the tribal politicians who are doing this to their own people to sustain their power and their wealth sit in leadership positions in those organizations. And they tell their colleagues in those organizations, you can't speak ill of another tribe. This is an internal matter to our tribe. This is no business of your tribe. If we're to discuss these issues here on a national platform, we will appear weak to the outside world. And the list of excuses goes on and on and on. And so the answer is no. The National Congress of American Indians does not talk about these issues. The National Indian Gaming Association, responsible for defending that $32 billion treasury from attack from outside forces, but that same treasury that you know causes us to succumb to the, this disease of greed and get rid of our own people, they don't talk about these issues. And so there is not national Indian intertribal leadership discussion about this, and that is in great part why this has become an epidemic. Because in other instances where national Indian leadership step forward and speak out, there are solutions and there are cures. But in this instance, because the issue is taboo, because it's controversial, because it makes certain tribal politicians uh, look bad, we're not talking about it. And we're not talking about uh, the, the, the possible cures to this disease. And it's not just disenrollment. We're not talking about blood quantum because that's too uncomfortable. We're not talking about enrollment moratorium because that's too uncomfortable. We're not talking about not enrolling our children and forsaking the next several generations for sake of a per capita check because that's too uncomfortable. And we're certainly not talking about disenrollment. 
because that's uh, way too uncomfortable. So one of the major problems we have down here is the void of intertribal conversation. And that's why the conference that you attended in Tucson a couple of years was so powerful. It's the first time anybody down here knows of where at least some tribal leaders were in the same room having a conversation about these most difficult issues, these existential issues, these existential threats to our existence. And I fear that unless that conversation starts soon, um, we're in trouble. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I I see the same thing here in Canada. We have something called the Assembly of First Nations and we also have, you know, uh, uh, provincially or regionally based organizations. And, you know, their, their response is, um, you know, we're not going to do a session on blood quantum. We're not going to, you know, talk about how it, here in Canada women and children are targeted for exclusion from their communities um, and that it's, you know, a, a very male-based system. And that means that other First Nation leaders don't get the benefit of education, of training, of, of background, of alternatives in the same way that they should. I mean, you would think a national or regional organization should in fact be the best one to say, hey, here, we're laying out all the facts. Let's just look at the demographics. Let's just only look at the demographics of how long we're going to be in existence if we continue on this path. Let's talk about the hard stuff. Because all of this didn't originate with us, but we're the ones um, perpetuating it. And I, and I always thought that education is, you know, is the key to this. And And oftentimes we have our grassroots who are very, very educated but that doesn't necessarily translate at all times to the leadership. And, you know, how are we even supposed to have this conversation about alternatives? You know, what, what do our traditional laws say? What are, you know, uh, other alternatives to just a rigid blood quantum or disenrollment for, you know, per capita purposes? And, and, and I, th that's why, you know, I, I find social media helpful, but that's also why I found that Tucson conference helpful because from there you know other tribes or you know other first nations started talking about this issue and started engaging in what is an emotional issue for some people um because some people see it on at a very individual level like i don't like this person or i don't like that guy or so let's make a rule to exclude them not thinking about the larger you know the the, the larger implications of it and you know i'm Throughout all of this, the most interesting conversations um, to me is like about the alternatives, because there are alternatives to rigid blood quantum or, or um, you know, intermarriage moratoriums and things like that. And I'm wondering if, if you've also heard some of those conversations on what are viable alternatives to this disenrollment um, epidemic. Yeah, so first, just a point on education. I mean, we as Indigenous peoples in the United States and Canada need to be re-educated. Mm -hmm. And we don't need to go into the tortured past of residential or boarding schools or laws that outlawed the practice of Indian religion or the use of Indian language. But the fact of the matter, at least here in the United States for the last century plus, we've basically been brainwashed by the United States. Um, they almost literally have like washed our mouths out with soap in the instance of my uh, grandma in a boarding school for for being Indian. And what I'm getting at when I say that is today there are people who believe 
that we exist traditionally as a matter of names on a federal roll, or that we belong traditionally as a matter of blood quantum, which is a racial fiction. There's no such thing as a percentage mm -hmm. of, of Indian blood, which is to say that a quarter of the blood running through my veins is is Nomlaki or Kong Cow. That that is a colonial fiction brought to us by um, the British and by Europeans. But we we have been led to believe, uh, in general, uh, that these are our ways, or that that disenrollment is somehow an indigenous way. When again, there's no indigenous word or tradition that would ever cause somebody be, to be disenrolled as we're seeing it today. So what needs to happen is re-education. Um, we need to undo what's been done to us in terms of the brainwashing and the miseducation about who we are and where we come from. And that that needs to happen at all levels of indigenous society, but especially amongst tribal leadership. But in terms of alternative, yeah, there are alternatives to things like blood quantum. Um, there are kinship-based alternatives to metrics of belonging. Uh, like blood quantum. A and that is to do, for example, what my tribe does, which is uh, simply include you if you descend biologically from uh, your parents who are tribal members. So I, I directly descend from my great grandma, who was an original allottee of our reservation. And allotment is also a federal metric uh, of belonging and also a colonial uh, device, which is to say it's, there's no perfect solution here. Um, but because I descend directly from my mom and, of course, her mom and uh, her mom, who's my great grandma, an original lot team, my re reservation, I belong to Round Valley and now so do my children. Um, lineal descent is, is catching on here uh, in Indian country in America as people realize that blood quantum is designed to extinguish us. And it, it, at some point, the so-called blood will dilute. Uh, to the point where people no longer believe as a matter of phenotype, we look Indian and they'll just get rid of us. Or we'll just mathematically cause ourselves to disappear because our children aren't a quarter or an eighth or a sixteenth mm. or a thirty-second and they don't belong. And at some point we're going to assimilate them into mainstream society ourselves. Um, there are residential requirements that could be imposed, which is to say you need to have some residential or geographic connection to your homelands uh, to be enrolled or sustain your enrollment. So the Lumbee tribe, I know, requires certain connections to their headquarters in Pembroke, North Carolina, to sustain one's uh, enrollment, causing people to have to stay, you know, physically connected to Lumbee territory and to homelands in order to sustain their belonging. Um, there have been ideas floated that uh, to sustain citizenship or membership, you should you know, be required to vote or undertake certain privileges or duties of tribal membership to prove your continued belonging. Um, there are, are certain societies require requiring religious affiliation or language uh, use to sustain belonging. So there's there's all sorts of alternatives to colonial metrics of belonging like blood quantum or inclusion on roles or censuses, but we're not talking about those alternatives. And as a result, we're not developing uh, those alternatives. In fact, I don't profess to know all the alternatives, but I would like to think that through conversation nationally or regionally or even locally amongst tribal leadership, there are alternatives that I don't even know about and you don't even know about that we haven't even begun to think about. Um, so we have to have the conversation. We have to start the re-education. And ultimately, we have to come up with alternatives to blood quantum.
bottom, or um, we'll eventually see ourselves out of existence. Yeah, well, exactly. And, and it's the same thing here. I mean, we have 634 um, re recognized First Nations or Indian bands, and um, there, there's a, such a large variety of the ways in which people look at membership. Some are looking at it on a nation base, so it'd be a collective of First Nations. But all of those things you mentioned can be an open and flexible part of determining citizenship or belonging. And But by not talking about it, not addressing it at the leadership level, um, people fall into this risk of, of perpetuating colonialism. And uh, there's one thing I wanted to ask you about because it's something that I've seen here and I, you know, I've seen it uh, a few times in the U.S. where there, there are some private people who offer workshops or training on, you know, how to develop First Nation laws or tribal laws in general. And some of them include how to, you know, develop membership or enrollment laws. And and I've seen them promote blood quantum, like, you know, whether they're legal trainers or whether they're professional trainers, they're actually engaging with First Nations or tribes and, and you know, promoting blood quantum when, you know, as lawyers and professionals or experts they should know better. And I'm wondering how much of an impact you think that has for those who do reach out and try to get some kind of training. Yeah, I mean, I'm sickened by the cottage industry that has been created down here around membership. And there's a, a firm in particular that I won't name that is also known for doing what are called disenrollment audits, which is to say that non-Indians come into a tribal community and they are given access by tribal politicians to enrollment records, which are typically sacred or sacrosanct, the most confidential and privileged information that may exist in a particular tribe, other than what may be never shared in writing. Um, and they're given access to this to conduct so-called audits of these records. Uh, records, again, based on colonial metrics of belonging like blood quantum or inclusion on federal censuses or roles. And then these auditors basically tell the tribal politicians who doesn't belong or affirms to the tribal politicians who doesn't belong. And next thing you know, certain indigenous peoples no longer belong. It's a, it's a sickening, sickening industry. Those same people teach, quote unquote, teach uh, classes or seminars in membership. And not only do they teach disenrollment, but they do teach things like use of blood quantum. And it, I guess it's just a very sad state when we would have any seminar taught by non-Indians in some Las Vegas conference room about who we are and how we belong, or even worse, uh, who we aren't and, and who doesn't belong. Um, but yeah, there there is a trend of that happening here in the States. That is not the type of education I think we need. Uh, mm -hmm. That's, in fact, further miseducation, further brainwashing. Um, we need organic tribal, traditional conversation and education about these issues um, before it's too late. Well, and, and you know, I, I'm glad this, I'm glad you're kind of um, talking about this, you know, it, it, it really, the re-education part really needs to be done by us uh, on this organic level and, it, you know, involving grassroots and leaderships and our, you um, and our own experts, because we have lots of Native experts throughout our 
our um, neighboring territories who have been working on this and researching on this. I mean, I follow your work and David Wilkins' work and and lots of other people. I mean, there's lots of books out there. There's lots of, you know, published articles. It's just about, you know, bringing it all together so that leadership has the benefit of this and leadership can see the inherent dangers and and you know why it's it's far more beneficial to protect our collectives and our individual people on a long-term basis and and um, that that's what this podcast is about it's trying to reach as many people as possible we have this you know platform now social media we can you know engage with people on facebook and youtube and podcasts and blogs and and i would like to think that you know until we get to a space where you know, all of our leadership and all of our our nations are re-educated and decolonized from you know these colonial harmful tactics. That we we ha- kind of have to pick up this this obligation to to educate, and that's like what you're doing is so impactful and and so meaningful. And like I said, the first time I you know heard you speak, I just. I knew it was coming from a good place and I knew it was about protecting our people in a good way, in a native way, in a traditional indigenous uh, mindset way. And, and I hope that you, you know, you keep on with your efforts um, because it's, it's so important. And, and, and I also wanted to share this with First Nations here in Canada to, you know, to really help them understand we, we can't go down this road. Like, this is so dangerous in in the tribal um, nations in the U.S. that we we don't want this happening here. But we also have to look at what we're doing in terms of the moratoriums and the exclusions. Um, to really, we're just telling our kids they don't belong, and that is literally the heart of of colonization and and ending ending our nations. And so I, you know, I, I really thank you for the work that you do, Gabe. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, I just hope that conversations like this and the one we participated in in Tucson and hopefully conversations that will ha- happen throughout First Nations country or Indian country uh, w- will lead the people back in their homes and in their communities to, you know, really look in the mirror and figure out who they are and who we are as Indigenous peoples. And, you know, there's only so much Gabe or Pam or David or anyone else can say, especially on a on a you know, computer interview or a podcast Mm -hmm. and, and nor would we want to tell certain communities, you know, how to define who they are and how they belong. But hopefully we at least just catalyze some really critical, deep thought about the moment we find ourselves in as indigenous peoples. And then hopefully those tribal elders and tribal leaders and husbands and wives and children will have conversations, you know, be it in a longhouse or a community center or at a dinner table throughout a tribal community um, before it's too late, before we're further victimized by blood quantum or disenrollment or enrollment moratoria. And so that they might find an alternative to these, these perils. Um, and, I, and I worry greatly um, about our ability to find these alternatives given all the dynamics and forces that we're talking about. But I also have hope that um, through indigenous fortitude and strength that tribal communities will We'll have those conversations and we'll figure out in the longest term, um, you know, who they are and how they belong. 
Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, honestly, it's it's people like you and David and so many others who just continue this education effort that really does give um, people like me hope that we can do the same thing here, you know, on the northern side of the border. And, you know, I really, once again, I just really want to acknowledge your widespread public education efforts in Indian country to really just try to protect our nations and our future generations. And and I hope I can get you back on the show sometime. There are so many complex, um, you know, issues that we can talk about that relate to all of this. And you're such a wealth of knowledge and, and I really appreciate it. So hopefully you'll come back and join me sometime. I would love to. Thank you for all those good words. Thank you for all those likes and shares and hearts on Twitter. And uh, I would love to come back. It was a privilege to chat with you. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you so much. Um, thank you, everybody, for tuning into my show. I really hope you enjoyed listening uh, to Gabe Galandi. I hope you learned something. I hope there's some nugget of information that inspires you to learn more or take it back to your um, tribal community or First Nation. And what I'll do is I will post a link to Gabe's website in my description box so you can read some of his latest publications on tribal disenrollment and all of the related issues. And if you like this episode, please consider supporting my podcast by subscribing, liking, and sharing the episode with all of your family and friends and people working in this area. And also make sure to leave us your, your comments, your impressions, your questions, so that we know how to address your concerns going forward. I'm currently hosted on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify, but you can also follow me on Instagram as Pam underscore Palmeter as I talk about warrior living or on YouTube where I tackle really difficult political and legal issues facing native peoples. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Walaliug.